Folks, welcome. If you don't know me, my name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. It's great to have you with us. And we're going through a series in the book of Exodus, and you probably got a hint from Katie's um, sermon. We are going through five chapters today. So I hope you haven't got your chicken in the oven. That's all I'm saying. If you've got your chicken in the oven, it's going to be burnt. So it'll be McDonald's on the way home. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. But we are going to be looking at five chapters. We're going to be going from chapter, se- uh, so the chapter 7 right through to the end of chapter 11. Because we're doing a series in the book of Exodus. And as Ben said before, the story of the book of Exodus is God saving a people for himself to serve him. And that he will live in the midst of them and that they are to display the glory that he displays to them to the world. And last week we saw that God in his goodness and his graciousness had raised up a deliverer to save Israel who had been in slavery for 400 years in the land of Egypt. And Moses had gone back to speak with Pharaoh, to proclaim to Pharaoh what God had said, let my people go so that they may serve me. The response of Pharaoh who was an insecure, arrogant, fearful leader was one of aggression. It was one of pride. It was one of, no, you're not going to go. In fact, the slaves who are making bricks, they're now going to make them without any straw. And God graciously says to Moses, I will redeem my people, chapter 6. I will save them. I will bring them out of Egypt. And today, I'm going to read chapter 7, verses 1 through to 13. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to that. That'll be great. But while you're doing that, folks, for those of you who've joined the last few weeks, we're actually walking through a little booklet that we've put together, which have got some questions in, application questions for each week that you can walk through as an individual or in the context of your gospel community. So if you haven't taken one of these, they're at the back. And for those of you who are looking, well, it only goes up to chapter 15, we are going to produce another one after Easter when we continue in our series. So turn in your Bibles. Chapter 7, let me read. Now the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that by your spirit you would 
protect us from being passive as we hear your word. I pray that by your spirit you would help us to realize that what is occurring now as your word is preached, as your word is proclaimed, as we sing and as we pray, as we gather as your people displaying your glory, as we seek to figure out what it looks like to really love the vulnerable people within our community, help us realize that we are engaging in spiritual warfare. Help us to see that there are powers and principalities that are seeking to do everything to distort your word and to destroy your image. Help us now, Lord, as we open up your word to step in for the glory of Christ and for the good of your people and for the sake of the lost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God has remembered his promise. He's told Moses that he will redeem his people from their slavery. He will lead them out of Egypt and take them to the promised land. And despite the fact that the people find it hard to listen, we read that last week, because they're burdened, they're wearisome, they're making bricks without straw. God will stretch out his arm, his mighty hand. He will bring judgment and he will deliver his people. And over the next five chapters here, we're going to see God laying out his hand on Egypt, chapter 7, verse 4, which means he is going to bring judgment on the land, judgment on the people because of the disobedience of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, let my people go. His answer, So we're going to see three things. We're going to see the supremacy of God. We're going to see the sovereignty of God. And we're going to see the salvation of God. Number one, the supremacy of God. God has told them that he will multiply his wonders in the land. Verse, seven, verse 8, it says there. I'm going to multiply my wonders in the land. And he tells Moses and Aaron that when Pharaoh asked for a miracle to prove themselves, I want you to do that staff thing that I showed you, Moses. Remember that staff thing when God said, well, well, what shall I do to show? Remember that? I think it was in chapter 4. And God said, take that staff, see that stick, see what I can do with that stick. And it turns into a sermon. Do that staff thing in front of them. So Moses and Pharaoh, they do exactly as the Lord commanded, and the staff of Aaron becomes a snake. But verse 11, what we see is that Pharaoh summons his wise men, his magicians, his enchanters, and they do exactly the same using the secret arts. See, the wonder that God had told Moses and Aaron seemed to be matched by Pharaoh's magicians. We see it again in verse 22 of chapter 7, where we see the first plague where God turns the water of the Nile into blood. They seem to be able to replicate it. We see it again in chapter 8, verse 7, where God brings frogs that come up from the land. It appears again that according to their secret arts, they're able to replicate it. Folks, what we need to see here, that the battle of God and the battle of the plagues are not just the judgment of Pharaoh and Egypt. They are a proclamation and a declaration and war against the gods of Egypt. See, what we will read as we walk through the plague accounts is God displaying his supremacy as the one and only God. 
that the plagues that God brings on Egypt aren't just random attacks. What we're going to see is that he systematically breaks down the distorted belief structures of the most powerful nation on earth, and he does it by picking off one by one the pantheon of gods whilst proclaiming his supremacy. So God brings 10 plagues. And those 10 plagues are not random. Those 10 plagues are picking off the gods of Egypt one by one. And here they are. The first plague was, you see in chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, where God turns water to blood. And what he's doing, see the picture there? See the picture? What he is doing there, he is dealing with, he is dealing with the Egyptian god called Happy, who was the god of the Nile. They would worship Happy, and they would worship Happy because the life source of Egypt came from the Nile. Through the first plague, water turned into blood. He is showing his supremacy over the Egyptian god, Happy. The next one that we see, chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, is where God commands for frogs to come up on the land, and they're everywhere. You read about they're everywhere, bouncing around, having a nightmare. When we, were, when we lived in one of our houses, we had a long garden, and every time I used to mow the lawn, there was evidence of frogs flying off the mow everywhere. They were everywhere. Couldn't get rid of them. They would ever imagine frogs everywhere. What God is here is dealing with the, the god Heket, who is the goddess of fertility, water, and renewal. And if you notice there, this is a picture that was found in Egyptian hieroglyphics. It was found somewhere original. Do you see the head of the god? There's a frog. Do you see that? The next plague that God brings is the plague of gnats. You read that in chapter 8, verses 16 to 19. And this is the bringing down of the god Geb, who was the god over the dust of the earth. What you read about this, all the dust on the earth became gnats. And those gnats with everything, you know the little, oh, the little, little gnats everywhere and you just can't get rid of them. I don't know if you've ever been to a country where they're everywhere. In our house at certain times of the year, there's like fruit flies. Oh, they're just oh, everywhere. You imagine? It's just a nightmare. But God is bringing the gnats because this God, these gods, not only are the gods that, that, as far as the Egyptians are concerned, are the gods that will, 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 will bring these into play. These are the gods that have control over these things. Whereas God brings a plague of gnats bringing down the god called Geb. The next plague is the plague of flies, 820 to 32, and that's dealing with the god Kepri, who is the god of creation. And what you see from another picture is that his head is a fly. His head is a fly. See, folks, it's so important for us to recognize as we walk through this and as we see this, it's not random. And the people of Egypt and Pharaoh himself and the magicians and the sorcerers and everyone around and even the Israelites would have seen exactly what was occurring. They would have been on their knees praying to Happy. They would have been on their knees praying to Hecate. They would have been on their knees and sacrificing in order to reverse what was going on and nothing could occur. The next plague is the death of Egyptian livestock, 9, 1 to 7. And this is dealing with the god Hathor, who is the goddess of love the god of, of death, the goddess usually depicted with the head of a cow. Now, I couldn't find one of those pictures, but as you read through history, usually as the head of a cow. It's not really attractive, obviously. The head of a cow. And then we see the plague of boils, 9, 8 to 12. And this is dealing with the god Isis, the goddess of medicine and peace. It's interesting, when you read that part of the Bible, you haven't got time to go there today. When you read that, what you see is 
the people can't rest. There's no peace because of the pain of the boils. It's interesting, this goddess is a goddess of medicine, so there's no comfort, and the goddess of peace, so there's no peace. And God brings it down. The next one is the plague of hail rained down in the form of a fire. You read that 9, 13 to 35. And God, the goddess Nut, who is the goddess of the sky. The goddess is the sky. The next one is the, God, it's the plague of locusts, chapter 10, verses 1 to 20. And that is dealing with this, the god called Seth, the god of storms. And then in 21, 29 of chapter 10, it is the plague of darkness that is dealing with Ra. Many of you would have heard of that god the God of the sun, for three days there was complete darkness. And then finally, from chapters 11 to 12, and we'll look more of this next week, the final plague defeats the greatest God in the Egyptian pantheon, which is Pharaoh himself, where we see the death of the firstborn. Folks, these were not random attacks. These were systematic breaking down of a belief structure of the most powerful nation on earth, on earth, and God was showing the impotency of their gods. But whilst God is picking off the Egyptian gods one by one and is breaking down the belief structures, he is all pro also proclaiming, he is also proclaiming that all people will know that he, that God, he, Yahweh, is the Lord of hosts. He is over all. Pharaoh, in his arrogance, has asked, who is this Yahweh? You read that, who is this? Who's this Yahweh that I should obey? And in the first plague, he attacks the Nile. And God is declaring that he is over the life-sustaining power of the Nile, that it is his decision whether life is sustained or whether it's not. He's proclaiming through these plagues that all will know that God, Yahweh, is the Lord of hosts. He's also proclaiming that all will know that the Lord is the only God. See, Pharaoh was told that the purposes of the frogs in chapter 8, verse 10, and the purposes of the hail in chapter 9, verse 14, were that he would know that there was none like him. I'm going to bring these down on you, that you will know that there is no God like me in all of the earth. See, earlier on I said the Pharaoh's magicians, they were able to do the same as the plagues by their secret arts. But when you read closely, yes, they were able to turn their sticks into snakes, but Aaron's staff, Aaron's snake, swallowed up the magician's snakes. Yes, they turned water into blood by their secret arts, 722, but they could not reverse the plague. Yes, they caused frogs to come up onto the land, 8 verse 7, but they couldn't get rid of them. And it took Pharaoh to ask Moses to plead to God to make it stop. And by the time you get to the fourth plague of dust turning into gnats, they tried, but they couldn't. In 18, and they said to Pharaoh, this must be the finger of God. This must be the finger of God. Even his magicians, through the process of the plagues, start to realize that the Lord is the only God. 
and he brings these plagues also that all will know that God is present in the land. When you get to the fourth plague, God sends swarms of flies all over Egypt. But with this plague, he says in chapter 8, verse 22, he will set apart a place called Goshen. Now, the place called Goshen in Israel was the place where God's, in Egypt was the place where God's people Israel lived. And what he says, I'm going to bring these plagues. But when this plague of fly comes, there will be flies everywhere in Egypt, but they will not be in Goshen. I hate flies. I have a, a real passion for flies. One of the questions that I'm going to ask Jesus when he returns, why did you create them, mate? Them and cats, all right? They're, they're, they're the two things. I'm sorry if you're a cat lover. I'm a dog lover. Them and cats. I just do not understand. You see a lot of cats in the Egyptian gods. That's all I'm saying. But I hate flies. And if you ask any of the staff here, especially Paul and Ben, those I work very closely with, if we're in the room, especially summer, and there's a fly in the room, I cannot concentrate. I'm like, the full it, full it. And in, in, in the old office that we used to have in Ramley's Road Chapel, don't have an office here because the building needs doing, just a reminder to everybody. Right, so we don't have, <laughs> so, so, so I had in my drawer, if you opened up my drawer, I must have had about five or six used fly sprays. Because I couldn't deal with it. So as soon as a fly comes in the room, I'm like, I'm armed. I'm all everywhere. And one of the things about flies that are so frustrating, they never stay still, do they? They never stay still. They fly wherever they want to fly. They'll go wherever they want to go. See, folks, let's not pass over this. This is an amazing miracle, especially for someone that hates flies. God actually proved that he was present in the land because he was able to orchestrate that the flies of the plague remained in the part of Egypt that he wanted them to remain. And he protected his, God pe his God's people from flies. That's not a promise that we have at this moment in time, but in the new creation, there will no be, will, hopefully there won't be any flies. See, God makes this distinction so that they may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Keeping Goshen separate displayed the presence of divine activity and authority right at the heart of the land of Egypt. And God also, through the plagues, is proclaiming that all will know that God is all-powerful. That there is nothing and no one who can match God both in his power but also in his purpose. See, when you get into chapter 9, verse 14, it, the writer Moses introduced the idea that the Lord is over all the earth and he has the power, his power, ultimate power at his disposal and he can determine anything. He says in verse 14 of chapter 9, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. I'm going to send them on you yourself. And on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no... No, none like me in all the earth. He was purposeful. He had the power at his disposal, and he determined who it was on. But it also shows that God is powerful, over, not only powerful plagues, the land, the servants, but he is also powerful and could determine even the heart and life of Pharaoh himself. See, verse 16 of chapter 9 says this, but for this purpose... I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh was who he was, and Pharaoh was 
where he was by a powerful divine appointment of God. Folks, what I want you to hear that this doesn't make him any less responsible, and we'll look at that in a moment, but it does show us that all of history is in God's hands, and it does show us that all of history is ultimately God's story. So God shows his supremacy overall as he takes down the Egyptian gods and takes down Egypt through the bringing of plagues. But a question I had when I was looking at this, why the concentration on Egypt uh, plagues? Now that might sound strange after what I've done. Why the concentration of it? Because after all, uh, sorry, why the concentration of plagues that were attacking Egyptian gods? Why? Because after all, gods are man-made, aren't they? After all, they are human inventions. What's the big deal? See, it tells us in Isaiah 44, to worship man-made things is foolishness. To put our trust in things that we have made is delusional. Agreed? Agreed. Even though we do it, even though we find ourselves doing it, we know from God's word to worship idols is foolishness. It's delusional. So what the big deal? And folks, yes, this was true of the gods of Egypt. They were man-made and they were impotent. However, I don't want us to miss and dismiss the truth that there are demonic powers at work that bond people to slavery of these man-made things, of these idols, of these gods. See, in the case of the Egyptian gods, the demonic was even revealed in the work of the Egyptians. Do you remember in chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 8? They, did, they, they, they were able to sort of imitate the plagues of God according to what? I don't know if you saw it. The secret arts. The secret arts. The original world is sorcery that can be translated occult practices. See, these battles of the plagues were not just against wood and clay, and they weren't just against flesh and blood, but they were against powers and principalities. Folks, please hear me. Behind every false god, behind every false idol, there is a spiritual battle waging war for your heart and affections. And there are demonic powers seeking to bond you to the slavery of that. Ephesians 6 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, the evil one, the devil himself, even takes good things. He even takes good things and seeks us to bond us to slavery of them through the worship of them that ultimately destroy us. See, everything that each of the Egyptian gods represented were good things. They were good things. They were created things. Nile, frogs, even flies. Created things by God, that the demonic powers enslaved people to them and they worshiped them. It tells us in Romans that we have, instead of worshiping the Creator, 
we worship the second best things, the created things. And putting anyone in place of him or anything in place of him is an idol. It is to worship a false god. Folks, let's take something that, that God has given us, God has given to humanity, which is a good thing, sex. Sex is a wonderful gift from God, but it makes a terrible God. Terrible God. When sex is distorted, misused, the slavery and bondage and hold it has on us feels like a God. It feels like a God. And we worship it. We seek it. We pursue it. And we feel and we even believe that it defines who we are. That is the work of demonic powers, distorting the truth of God and his beautiful gift, gift of sex that actually distorts your own thinking of what it is to be human. See, what we see here is God systematically breaks down the impotent man-made gods of Egypt whilst also displaying his power over the demonic powers at work. And folks, please, I don't want you leaving this place worried about that there's a, there's a demon behind everything. We need to take heart and know that despite the work of the evil one and his attempts, what we see here is that God overcomes them, but also what we know because we live this side of the cross and resurrection that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Amen? Amen. He has triumphed over them. And they will attempt to do anything that they can. If you are one of God's children, they are going to put a barrage against you and you step into spiritual warfare. Becoming a Christian is not something that is easy. It is not moving from downstairs to upstairs in Downton Abbey. No, it is stepping into the battle. The devil doesn't really care for those that do not proclaim the name of Jesus. He cares for those who do. And he wants to dishonor and destroy, and he does it with the good things that God has given. But take heart. Jesus has disarmed them and put them to open shame. Amen? Amen. We see here the supremacy of God. Number two, we see the sovereignty of God, the control of God, the loving reign of God. Now, we see his sovereignty in his power and in his purpose over all these chapters, but we also see specifics of that, specifics of his sovereignty, elements of it. And we see that in his holiness, and we see that in his justice. See, we see elements of his sovereignty, his reign, in that he is holy, his holiness. That God himself is set apart. He's set apart from anything else in all creation, anything else in all the cosmos. God stands alone. He is holy, perfect, blameless. But because he is holy, perfect, and blameless, he must deal with non-holiness. He must deal with sin. See, this is a big question because people struggle with the, this would have hurt a lot of people, these plagues. People struggle with that. They struggle with this issue. But God being holy in his sovereignty must deal with sinfulness, must deal 
with injustice. Remember when God spoke to Moses in chapter 3 through the burning bush? Can you remember? He says to him, come to me. And then as he comes to him, he tells him to stop. Don't come too close. He tells him to take off his shoes. Why is that? Because God is holy and set apart and Moses was not. Moses was sinful. He wasn't able to step and come close into the presence of God. Do you remember when we went through chapter 4 that Moses was so close to be killed by God because of his sin and his disobedience and his, his disobedience to the covenants of God that the just punishment of his sin, the wrath of God was upon him. And he took the circumcision of his son, the cutting of flesh, the spilling of blood placed upon his foot for him to be saved. If you want to understand what that means, Go on YouTube and listen to it for a few weeks ago. Because of his holiness and his set-apartness, God has to respond to sin. And his responses to sin, folks, hear me, are just. They are right. And what we see in the plagues is God's right judgments on the sins of Pharaoh and God's right judgments on the sins of Egypt. If you don't know, the, way, the, the Bible tells us that the wages of our sin, what comes because of our sin, our rejection of God, is death. So what we deserve as human beings, what we should get because of our sin and rejection of God is death. What we are owed because of that is death. So God in his holiness is sovereignly dealing with a king and a people who are in sin, and he therefore justly punishes them. What we need to see and realize that holiness requires judgment on the wicked and justice is only served when sin is paid for. This is, I think, one of the biggest elements of God's character that our culture struggle with, struggles with. Agreed? You might struggle with it. Even as a Christian, I believe will help my unbelief. But our culture is so offended. Oh, so offended. How could God do that? But strangely, at the same time, we live in a culture that cries out for justice. See, our culture fails to see that just, the, 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 the justice that is desired and the justice that the culture wants can only be found in a sovereign God who sets the standards. A sovereign God who is holy and a sovereign God who execute, executes perfect judgment on the guilty. Folks, even, I used to be a policeman. And I'm telling you now, even the best case, even, even the, the, the most clear and upright process for justice is still flawed. Why? Because it's been executed by those who aren't holy. Those who are still marked by sin. Folks, without a God of holiness and justice, we have no hope that ultimate justice will come against the world's oppressors, abusers, the wicked, and the evil. Folks, during this time that we find ourselves in, where oppression is seen, where abuse is seen, where there are those who are putting themselves up as the king and gods of the world, please, Find comfort that we have a sovereign God who is holy and a sovereign God who executes and exercises holy justice 
on wickedness. He has promised that he will do that. We need to trust that he will in his time and in his way. Now in the process of this holy justice being poured out, we again see through the plagues the grace of God, don't we? We still see the grace of God. See, the first few plagues are like a shot across the bow. They're like warning shots to Pharaoh. I said that to the staff on Thursday. They were like, hang on, he turned all the water into blood? Yeah, it was a big bullet. All right, so he shot, shot across. But as we go through the plagues, we see, we see that people start to wake up to what God is doing. He is so gracious that he opens up their minds. You know, during the plague of the locusts in chapter 10, his, his servants, Pharaoh's servants are saying, just let them go. Just let them go so they can save their God. Can't you see? Can't you see what is happening to us? Can't you see what has happened to Egypt? We are in ruins. But Pharaoh, even after being shown sign after sign, does not change. Even though the grace of God has been displayed in the fact that he didn't destroy him on the spot, his heart still remains hardened. And because of this, he will suffer the greatest pain in the final plague when he loses his own first son. But another area, folks, of God's sovereignty, and often an issue of difficulty, not only for non-Christians, but Christians alike, in these chapters, is the issue of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Difficult? For the three of you that have read it, yes. And questions are often asked. Did God, uh, sorry, did Pharaoh, because God hardened his heart, did Pharaoh have a chance? Was he doomed from the beginning? And because of that, can he truly be held responsible? After all, God had already told him in chapter 9, verse 16, it's for this very purpose that you have been raised up. Now, as we walk through the flow of the story, one thing we've got to remember, when God first spoke to Moses in chapter 3, verse 19, God said this, I know, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Pharaoh was not going to give the people up easily. And we've already seen and spoken about his ignorance. Who is this God? Who is this God that I should obey? See, I want to highlight that, folks, to show you that it's not as simple as us saying, well, Pharaoh didn't have a chance, or he didn't have a choice, or that's not fair. See, as you read through these chapters, what you see on 10 occasions, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is ascribed to God. But on a further 10 occasions, he hardens his own heart. See, the hardening was as much as Pharaoh's own act as it was the work of God. And we need to notice that Pharaoh alone was the agent of the hardening of his, of his heart in the first five plagues. And it's not till the sixth plague does God harden his heart. See, as we read through, we see that God, right, is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart as he said he would. But also we see that Pharaoh is also responsible as he hardens his own heart. So what is happening here is divine agency and human agency simultaneously functioning under the sovereign control of God, which is 
a mystery. Which is not a cop-out. Because even Paul says that many things are a mystery. It's a mystery. It's what is known as an antinomy. All right? And an antinomy in philosophy is a contradiction between principles or conclusions that seem equally necessary and responsible. But in theology, it's narrowed a little bit. Theology being the understanding of God. It's narrowed a bit, and it's understood as logical contradictions, logical contradiction between principles that are both affirmed in Scripture. So logically, they contradict each other. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God hardened his heart, and God is sovereign. They seem to contradict each other. But there are others. God is one, but also God is three persons. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is also fully, 100%, man. Also, they appear to contradict each other, but the Bible affirms both. And in this case, we see a sovereign God raising up a man for a specific purpose, hardening his heart, and we also see the logical contradiction that Pharaoh is hardening his own heart and being held responsible, both divine and human agency and responsibility happening, though appear to be contradictory, and they're both affirmed in the story. They're both happening. Folks, this issue, the issue is we have to, we have, the issue we have with this is that we, own, we as human beings only see this from our perspective. We need to be humble enough to say we are only seeing this from our perspective, from our understanding. And the only decisions and decision-making processes that are around in town are human decision processes. That's all we can tangibly understand. So therefore, we can easily draw the wrong conclusion and say that it's not fair. But we need to also see that God is on a plane much higher than we are. That he sits in a seat of fuller understanding. That his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And at times, as we read through the Bible, it seems to say sometimes that the same thing can be willed at a human level and willed at a divine level, level, with neither of those two decisions simply being a cause and being a, a, as a result of the other one. Sometimes that happens. So there is a divine and a human agency working together at the same time. And this is what we see here with the hardening by God and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. They both reach the same outcome. God is saying, I'm going to do this. But in response, Pharaoh is saying, I don't want to, but both the will of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, that, Pharaoh's that way, and the will of God bring about the same income. God does what God is going to do, and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart towards God breaks him to the point of doing what he doesn't want to do, which is letting the people go. Both bring hardening, but from, for different purposes. We see God's purpose in hardening. In that, his purpose is to save his people, to lead them out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and take them to the land that he has promised. And he will show Pharaoh and the world and the powers and principalities that he is the one true God. That's his purpose for hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's agenda for hardening his heart is, I don't want to lose my slaves. I don't want to lose face. I don't want to humble myself because I think I'm ultimate. 
See, we have both layers with different intentions, but both will the same outcome. Both decisions bring the same conclusion. And the writer is saying, did Pharaoh harden his heart? His answer, yes. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? The answer is yes. Both of these realities are true. The difficulty that we have is that we only see it from different perspectives. Let me show you an illustration. Cylindrical object, okay? That's what it is, a, cylinder, a cylindrical object. Let me step down here. Now imagine you can only see in two, 2D. That means flat, okay? So Lucas, in your best French accent, okay? What shape do you see there? Around a circle, around a circle, there we go. That's all you see, okay. James, what shape do you see there, 2D? A rectangle. And it's, you can look at it all day, you don't see around, do you? No, you can look at it all day, you don't see, you don't. But that's your perspective. What you've got to remember is we see in 2D, but God sees in 4K. It's a cylindrical object. It's neither a circle nor a rectangle. It's cylindrical. Do you see that? Do you see that? Now, the folks, is if you're sitting there trying to battle your brains, trying to figure out, figure out, well, I just can't figure out, that is the answer. You can't figure it out. We need to be humble enough to go, actually, within the sovereignty of God, there is human responsibility under the midst and the beauty of God's sovereignty. See, the other th question I think we need to consider is, how does God harden his heart? How does he do it? And what causes Pharaoh to harden his heart? And I think both questions have the same answer, which is this. God simply revealed himself. God simply revealed himself. He revealed his, pow re revealed his power, his supremacy, his love for his people, his hatred of sin, through the signs and wonders of the plagues. Folks, it was the revelation of God that hardened his heart. It's a biblical truth that revelation absent of the illuminating grace and the work of the Holy Spirit to open eyes hardens sinful hearts. It hardens hearts without the illuminating grace and work of the Holy Spirit. Sinful hearts become harder when God is revealed to them. Somebody once said, the same sun that melts the wax can harden the clay. And it was Jesus, when speaking to the Jews and the religious leaders who were questioning about him, he says, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe. I'm speaking the truth. I am the truth. I'm revealing myself to you, but you do not believe for that very reason. So the issue of the hardening of the heart is unbelief. The primary reason for a hard heart is an unbelieving heart. See, the cause of a hard, callous, angry heart is an unbelieving heart, a depraved heart that books against divine revelation. The unbeliever hates and so suppresses the truth. That's what Romans tells us, that we've been revealed the truth in all of creation. We are with our excuse, but we've suppressed that truth. We suppress it, and as a result of suppressing, our heart towards God becomes harder and harder and harder. See, Pharaoh's unbelief and unwillingness to see and acknowledgement and for him to bow the knee to the one true good God was the cause of his hardening. 
God revealed himself and Pharaoh rejected and therefore his heart was hardened. Folks, this is the reality of people's responses to even us as Christians. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that we, the church, are the aroma of Christ to God. So when God smells us, he smells Christ. That's a good smell. But for others, that fragrance is life. They smell it. They see the wonder of God's people. They're like, there's something about that. But for others, it's the stench of death, a hardening of heart. I want to tell you one story. I know it's long, folks, but this is important. Let me just tell you one story. Because I know as we talk about these things, where people go is, what about my unbelieving friend, my unbelieving family? Has God hardened their heart? Are they going to be saved? If God is sovereign, we could walk down those roads. My grandmother died at 96 years of age. She was not a Christian. For 96 years, four months, and about six hours, she wasn't a Christian. But for the last six hours of her life, she was. And my nan used to come to church. She'd ask me about church. She'd come and she'd sit. She'd always sit over, not in this building, seemed to sit over here, face like thunder. Face like thunder. And she wasn't like that. Why? Because God was being revealed to her, not only through my mum and dad, through us as a family, but the church. She'd come occasionally, very occasionally, and she'd come face like thunder. And just before she died, all the family went to see her. She was very confused in all different ways. And I was coming back from London. And I, my mum said, Stephen, you need to go and see your nan. It looks like it's the end. I arrived at the home that she was living. She was asleep. I walked in. I thought I'd just sit and I'd pray. And as I was praying, she woke up. She was lucid. She was totally all there. Hiya, Stephen. Where have you been, son? Told her. She went, oh, you're doing a lot of traveling at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I am, nan, blah, blah. Out of the blue, she said, Steve, do you remember the song that I used to sing to you, used to, when you were a baby, used to put you, me on your knee and sing the song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. She never did that, right? <laughs> she never did that, right? And I said, Nan, you've heard me, you've heard mom, you've heard dad. You've seen us live the truth of that. Do you believe those words? And she looked at me, and I know it to be true. Stephen, I do. We prayed. She gave her life to Jesus. And about a week later, she died. And no one else had a conversation. Folks, God in his graciousness can melt the hardest of hearts. And finally, as we close, this is much shorter, folks. The salvation of God. See, we are moving towards the ultimate point in the book of Exodus, where the justice and mercy of God meet, where sacrifice is made and victory is won, where all the enemies in this story so far are defeated and God's people walk free. We'll talk more about that next week in chapter 12. But what we see very quickly in chapter 11 are the warnings, again, the graciousness of God, the warnings of the final plague that will ultimately break Pharaoh and save Israel are given. He says the death of every firstborn is going to be killed across the land. That the impotence of Pharaoh will be finally shown and his hold over God's people will be broken. See, Pharaoh has resisted the Lord's warnings and he has rejected the opportunity to repent. And now for him, it is too late. And he says, God says to Moses in verse 9, Pharaoh will not listen to you. It's over. Nothing more can be done. 
See, what we're going to see is that death and suffering will lead to salvation. It will. But two things here that I want to point out regarding the blessings of salvation that I think we can miss as we look over those things, and there are these two things. Number one is this. That God says to Moses to tell the people of Egypt to go and ask the people, that tells the people of Israel to go and ask the people of Israel for their silver, doesn't he? Verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man and his neighbor and every woman of a neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. They were slaves. Slaves don't plunder the oppressor. But it was pretty, it was pretty much done. And God's people who were being saved started to enjoy the spoil of victory. It tells us in Isaiah 53, which is the beautiful sort of prophecy and foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus. And it's God saying about Jesus, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, the numerous, those he will save. We share in the victories of Christ. God's people here were sharing in the victories of God over the enemies. They were being set free, not only to serve him, but set free to enjoy the blessings of what it was to be his people. And we get a picture of that that points forward to the blessings that we have in Christ because of his victory. And in verse 3, what happens? And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And moreover, the man Moses was great was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people, the very enemies that God was systematically dealing with as he broke down their gods and now raising up Moses as somebody who was great. They're proclaiming that he is a deliverer. They're proclaiming that he is great in the land, folks, which is a picture and a foreshadow that one day, one day, every eye will see and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation 1 verse 7, it tells us, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood, and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on the account of him. When he returns, his justice will be seen. And for those who aren't in Christ, who was taken are just deserts, that will be a terrifying and fearful day. But you will proclaim, if you don't know Jesus, that he is still Lord and he is still king. Moses was raised up as great in the land. We have one who is far greater. He wasn't only a deliverer, but was the one who received the just deserts for our sin on the cross, who died in our place, who took all the wrath of God, every plague together and more upon himself in order to set broken people like you and me free, those with hardened hearts as the sun shines down are made soft to know him, to love him and to live for him. Folks, as we walk through these plagues, this is interesting. But it's wondrous when we see the supremacy of God. We see his gracious sovereignty. And we see that he is a God who saves. Amen? Amen. And now, and I know it's long, folks, but you know what? I think I say that every week. But this is the most important thing that you're going to hear today. It is. 
that we get to remember and enjoy and celebrate in the midst of the spoils of victory as we remember the broken body and the spilled blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, don't we? We do that. So I'm going to pray. And then as I'm praying, the guys are going to come up, get ready, and we're going to distribute the bread, and we'll distribute the wine at the same time. The guys will come, and we will sing. And we'll eat, and we'll drink, and we'll sing at the same time. This is not a funeral. This is a celebration. And if you want to pray with somebody next year, can I encourage you to do that? Can I also say if there's anybody that's felt the weight of what has occurred from what was shared from Anna, please, why don't you come to the front? We'd love to pray for you. It might be just to wait for others. It might even be something that you're dealing with yourself. Please, we'd love to pray for you. If you don't know what it is to be a Christian and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are sitting there and say, I feel like my heart is softening towards him, come and see and we will pray with you. But if you're not a Christian, can I ask you, you let the bread and the wine pass. This is something that we get to do as the saved people of God. I don't want you to be hypocritical. Let me pray. Let us eat. Let us drink. Let us sing. Celebrate and be thankful. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the supreme God over all, that you are sovereign, gracious, merciful, holy, and you exercise justice. And we thank you and we praise you, Lord, as we eat and as we drink now, that your holy justice was poured upon your son, the innocent one, Jesus Christ. That he, was the he is our justification. We, are, we can come close to you boldly because of him. That he is the propitiation. That he, he has absorbed and deflected and reflected your wrath so people like us through faith do not face it. And we thank you that he is our sanctification that we don't grow up from grace, we don't grow up from the gospel, that it is the grace and the gospel that continue to transform us to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. So as we eat and as we drink, reminders of that. As we sing, reminders of that. As we pray together, reminders of that for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat, let's drink, let's be thankful. The guys are going to sing, we're going to stand and sing, so we're going to pass it as we stand, we can do that. And let's celebrate. Enjoy the God who is supreme, the God who is sovereign, and the God who has saved you if you know him. Amen.